0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel 5. 2 Samuel 5, Hope's Blessed End. The wise King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. These words are intended to direct those who fear God into the great virtue of patience. Waiting upon God for His reward. Of all the lessons on patience in the Bible, there is certainly uh, no life that teaches us the lesson of patience better than the life of David throughout our series in 1 Samuel that we had for better than a year. And even over the past four chapters of 2 Samuel, we've watched David patiently wait for his promised end. David encouraged himself in Psalm 62, saying in verse 5, My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. This morning we learned lessons from Luke chapter 1 on faith. Encouraging each other to strengthen our faith. That faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And this evening, as we walk through Second Samuel five, we're going to come across a huge moment in the life of David. It won't be the biggest moment. And he's had some big ones already, right? I mean you're talking David and Goliath, it's a pretty big moment. He's had some big moments. But this is without a doubt the biggest moment thus far. Not in that it was something stupendously impactful from a physical idea. It's, it's not that it wasn't another giant that fell, but it was a moment of such importance to David. The verse will come and go with fanfare. does not contain any major point of controversy or any heavy doctrinal importance. It's a simple statement of success, but of success that was long awaited. And following our exposition of the passage itself, it's going to serve as the basis for a personal reminder of the joy of hope when patient endurance meets its expected end. I hope it will encourage you this evening as we walk through the text. So please look with me in Second uh, Samuel 5, at verses 1 and 2. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron, and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that led us out and broughtest in in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be captain over Israel. Remember the context of this passage. Ishbosheth has been betrayed. And murdered by two of his trusted captains. We learned about that last week. When those captains brought the head of Ishbosheth to David, David had them destroyed for their wicked treachery. Thus it was that both Abner, the captain of Israel's armies, and, and really the true leader of Israel in many ways, and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, the king of Israel, were dead. Now, the plan to broker a, a peace and accord between Israel and David had already been in place through Abner before his untimely death. So now the tribes come to, Isra- to, to David themselves, the tribes of Israel, the heads of Israel, they come to David and they initiate this relationship. They continue this relationship with him themselves. Now, interestingly enough, they recognize that even when Saul was their king and then Ishbosheth after him, it was David who had protected them from the Philistines. It was David who had been the nation's guardian. Remember in 1 Samuel 22, when David was in the safe house, the hold, they called it in Mizpah, and God told him through the prophet Gad that he should not stay in the hold, but rather he should go back into Judah. That was a long time ago, uh, so maybe you don't remember. It It wasn't a a big deal at the time. But God said, "You, you cannot stay here. He had just dropped his family off. And now he's in the hold. It's just called the hold. We'll see the hold come up again. He's in the hold, and God says, you can't stay in the hold. You need to go. You need to get into Judah. You need to be there. We mentioned in that series that God was doing this so that David could be among the people, protecting the people, building the goodwill of the people. Well, the people didn't miss it. They recognized the contributions that David had made even in his exile to the the favor and blessing of Israel. That even in his exile from Saul, as he was running from Saul, he was also running around helping the cities of Israel, defeating the Philistines, doing things for the nation. They even recognized God's hand in those actions, that David was protecting the nation at the request of God. That David had been called on by God to protect the nation because David was the Lord's anointed. They recognized all of this. They acknowledged all of this. This is a big deal. They were effectively saying, we know that that, that from from the point that you were anointed king to the time that Saul died, Saul was not supposed to be on the throne. David was. We recognize that ish was never supposed to be on the throne. You were supposed to be. You were our protector. You were the anointed of the Lord. You were the one that the Lord said to feed feed your people Israel. And now, what better option do we have than to come to you? Verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron. And King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. So there's a mutual agreement among the elders of Israel and David here that this is right. They make a league with David. They anoint David king over Israel. So it is that David becomes the king over the united 12 tribes of Israel. And we read the summary of David's reign in verses 4 and 5. The Bible says, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah 7 years and 6 months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned thirty and three years over all Israel and Judah. So he began his reign at age thirty, a very young man to be king. But he begins his reign at age thirty, which means he would have been thirty-seven to thirty-eight years old when he becomes king over all of Israel, all twelve tribes. Forty years, David was king. Seven and a half of them as king of of, uh, Judah and Hebron. Then the other 33 years as the king of all Israel in Jerusalem. Now David's first act as king was to take Jerusalem as his capital. It is likely that he had been contemplating for some time, even perhaps in his exile, certainly once he was king in Hebron, he'd been contemplating for some time where he wanted his capital city to be. Saul had Gibeah. Um, that was his hometown and it became his capital. Certainly David didn't necessarily want to be there. Where was David going to make his capital? Hebron wasn't really a great place for a capital because it was rocky, it was hilly, it wasn't very accessible. It's well defensible, but not very accessible. Jerusalem, and it wasn't very centralized either. Jerusalem was, was an ideal spot with one problem. Jerusalem at this point was not in the hands of Israel. Israel didn't live there. People of Israel didn't live there. The city was right on the border of the inheritance of Judah and Benjamin so that it's possible that the two tribes actually divided the responsibility of the city in half. Now, historically, the city had been occupied by a people group called the Jebusites. We read about this in Joshua fifteen sixty three. Uh, the Bible says, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, The children of Judah could not drive them out, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. So there was an intermingling. The the children of Judah came into the city, at least in part, and yet the city was never taken, that part of the city at least, was never taken from the Jebusites. But by the time of the judges, notice what we read in Judges 1.8. Now the children of Judah had fought against Jerusalem and had taken it and smitten it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. So, the the tribe of uh, Judah had at some point taken the city of Jerusalem, burned it with fire. However, in verse 21 of that same chapter, we read this. The children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. What is going on with these verses, Jerusalem and the Jebusites? So there seems to be this divide. And this should not surprise us because if you look at Jerusalem, historically, there's always been an upper and a lower city. And I don't have a map, but if you if you were to look at, in, a, in a Bible map, if you, were to, if you have a map of Jerusalem in the back of your Bible, you'll find that there's an upper city and a lower city of Jerusalem. And that probably accounts for this divide that because Jerusalem was right on the border of Benjamin and Judah, you probably had the lower city being... Uh, sieged and occupied by one area and the upper city being sieged and occupied by the other area. So while eventually the the Judites, the Jews, did take what is most likely the lower city, and they finally captured it and burned it with fire, yet the upper city, Benjamin's part, was never taken. It's very well fortified, and it was never taken the Jebusites remained there even after the, the tribe of Judah had been intermingling and then eventually took over that part of the city. So in that day, the Jebusites still held the upper city, the city of Jerusalem, and it was very strongly defended. And we read in verse 6, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. So strongly defended was this city that when David comes to claim Jerusalem for himself, the inhabitants mock David. Now, we don't exactly know the nature of their mocking. There's some suggestions out there in various commentaries, perhaps. Some, as some suggest, the inhabitants were so confident in the walls and in their fortifications that they took the lame and they took the blind of their city and they put them on the city walls. They kind of smiled and said, hey, if you're going to come against the city, you're going to have to take these blind and these lame. Kind of saying, look, we don't even need to have guards on these walls. There's no way you can get to us we're okay in here, you're okay out there, good luck David. Even the very weakest among them with defense was the idea, David would have no success in his conquest. The Benjamites have tried before, it sure didn't work for them, it's not going to work for you. That was the idea. and and, and Such was not the case with David, however. Look what we read in verses 7 and 8. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same as the city of David, And David said, On that day, whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore, they said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. David is not deterred by their mocking. And with the blessing of the Lord, he takes the city, the stronghold of which was being on Mount Zion. So uh, we, we have Mount Zion and on Mount Zion is the city of David, the upper city and that is what what is being taken here not the temple mount but but the the mount where the city rests so it would seem that David turned the conquest into a competition right if you if you want something to be done you put it in the hands of people and you compete for it and someone's going to get innovative enough to win that competition that's kind of a free market capitalism idea right you leave the people to do their thing you give them incentive And someone is going to be creative enough to come up with a solution because mankind is just amazing that way. The Lord has created us to be very creative people. So David says, whoever gets up there and takes them and destroys them. And he calls the place, when he says whoever goes up, he calls it the gutter. This was likely either a drainage port in the city or or a precipice. Probably what David had identified as a weak spot in the city's defenses. Uh, if it was a drainage, you know, it's, it's, it's a walled city, and, and it's on Mount Zion, and so if he sees the gutter, if he sees a, a drainage spout, maybe big enough for a man to crawl through, he says, that's the point. Or maybe a precipice that they didn't really defend because it was a sheer cliff. And he says, you know, that's the point. Whoever gets up there and kills these people will become a chief and a captain. So David identifies this week, spot. He calls for a man to get in there and to smite all the Jebusites, including, he says, the blind and the lame who mocked him on the wall. Now, normally, we would have fully expected David to show mercy on the weak in the city. But their mocking invalidated his mercy. And it would appear that David's command here inspired a proverb. And the proverb was this, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. That likely meant that those who are weak and yet would still in their pride mock and berate others, forfeit the sympathy and the care that should otherwise be afforded to them. So, if you're weak and you're needy, then you shouldn't go around mocking people that can help you. Mocking people that that can care for you. Mocking those who you might find yourself in need of one day. That's kind of the idea of the proverb here. You say, well, pastor... You're you're talking about the man that gets into the gutter. The man. How is one man going to slay an entire city? Well, when you read about David's mighty men, which we'll do at one point, you'll find that these men were men that trusted the Lord, like Jonathan and David before them. Men who weren't afraid to go up against hundreds by themselves. And they didn't need to be afraid, because if the Lord was with them, who could oppose them? So one man getting up into that gutter and taking the entire city by himself, when, you, when we read about David's mighty men, you'll find that that is probably not a far-fetched concept. As a matter of fact, when we read about David's mighty men, one of those feats might very well be this account that we'll read about at that time. So, of course, we, we read right at the beginning of verse 7 that David takes the stronghold. So it's taken. In verses 9 and 10, we read this. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David and David built roundabout from Millo and inward and David went on and grew great and the Lord of God of hosts was with him so David dwells in the fort he takes the fort which was the, the heavily fortified part he calls that the city of David Zion and he begins to build up the city the word Millo in Hebrew means citadel which would have been an outer defensive structure in the city So most likely that was the point, that David began fortifying the city at the farthest point, at this farthest citadel, and then he began working his way toward the fort on the other end of the city, and that was how he began fortifying the city of David. David grew great, the the scriptures tell us, and the Lord blessed and enriched and established his kingdom. We read in verse 11 that the reputation of David became great, It, it began to spread, Verse 11 says, And Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons, and they built David a house. Now, the city of Tyre was to the northwest of Israel on the coast, and it was one of the most powerful and most beautiful cities of the ancient world. If you ever do any research on Tyre, Tyre was uh, uh, one of the best natural ports in the world. It was beautiful, and because it was built out over a land bridge, it was well defended. It was literally the gateway to the Middle East. Every ship went through it. Their commerce was incredible. They were powerful. As a matter of fact, in the book of Ezekiel, we read about the prince of Tyre, and God describes the prince of Tyre who was the king, the, the king of Tyre in Ezekiel as Satan. But the prince of Tyre is the, the actual king of the city. And we read about its beauty and its strength. And God extols this city greatly for its beauty and its strength. He condemns it for its wickedness. But it was a powerful, beautiful city. It is now gone today. There's a place that still marks it on the map. But God, in the book of Ezekiel, promised that Tyre would be destroyed and never rebuilt. And indeed that great beautiful natural port remains unused today for its intended purpose because God has cursed that land Hiram however would therefore have been a king of exceptional power and exceptional influence exceptional wealth for him to send David messengers and for him to send David gifts to seek to build a friendship with David is officially recognizing that David has arrived. That he is something powerful, and Hiram wants David on his side. And that's a really, really big deal. So he sends David messengers, and he sends him cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons, and Hiram builds David a house to live in. He builds him a house a beautiful place to live continuing in verse 12 David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the people for his people Israel's sake it's finally here the hope which David has waited for and longed for he is king over Israel Israel is strong Israel is stable Imagine the blessedness of that day for David. We'll come back to this in our application. Let's continue. Not all of David's choices could be wisdom, however. Verses 13 through 16, we read this. And David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem. After he was come from Hebron, and there were yet sons and daughters born to David, and these be the names of those that were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, and Nathan, and Solomon, Ibar also, and Elishua, and Nepheg, and Japhia, and elishama and Eliada and Eliphalet. With the increase of David's power and authority also comes the magnification of his sinful tendency towards many women. This is a temptation when the Lord finally gives us rest. There's always the temptation to take that rest too far, and to get comfortable not just in the blessings of the lord but also in our sin. David had always had a problem with women and the problem is magnified when he gets into Jerusalem. This list is a summary of the children that he would have over the remainder of his life. This is not something that he had quickly. It was many years. Progress here, we see on this list Solomon, which means that this includes the time when he takes Bathsheba, which is still some time down the road. He has 11 more children the scriptures tell us in Jerusalem over the years. Four of these, Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, are born of Bathsheba, in fact, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, the one who David, is one of David's mighty men, whom David will murder. We also know that he had some female children. They're not mentioned in this list. Two other sons, as well, are not on this list, for whatever reason. They are mentioned in 1 Chronicles 3, if you want to compare and contrast those passages Perhaps the reason why those sons are not mentioned in this list is that they died young. Maybe, in fact, one of those children mentioned in 1 Chronicles was that first child that died because of David's sin with Bathsheba. We don't really know why they're not on this list, but it's quite possible that it's because they died before they could become of consequence in the the nation. Well, the remainder of the chapter tells tale of David's initial conquests of the Philistines. But when David, verse 17, heard that they had, uh, excuse me, but when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines came up to seek David, and David heard of it, and went down to the hold. The Philistines also came and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So the Philistines heard that David had established himself, and they come to destroy him. They can't allow David to become powerful, to unite Israel. Not not those dogs, the Israelites, right? They've got to be put down. They had not been le- legitimately opposed in the land since the death of Saul some eight years earlier, and they weren't about to just let David have have, have a kingdom back. So David, hearing this, goes down to the hold. That's that same hold. Wherever that hold is, possibly in mitzvah. Like I mentioned already, we ran into the hold several times in 1 Samuel. We know that this hold is not in the land of Judah because when he's in the hold in 1 Samuel, God says return to the land of Judah. I believe it was likely somewhere in the land of Moab where he dropped off his family. It was not a place, uh it was it was it was certainly a place where David felt comfortable, where he felt safe. Where he he felt like he could defend easily. A command center of sorts. He could strategically plan there without threat. And while the Philistines are preparing for war, they're gathering in the, Phil- the, in the valley of Rephaim, David is in the hold. Now the valley of Rephaim was on the back side of the city of Jerusalem, well into the inheritance of Judah. So I don't know if we could necessarily say that from Jerusalem the Valley of Rephaim could be observed, but it's definitely very close. It's on the back side of Jerusalem is that valley, the Valley of Rephaim. So that gives us an idea of where it is that the Philistines are gathering. They are already well into Jerusalem here. This is not just them gathering in their lands trying to decide what to do. They are, they are on the war path here, and they are coming straight for David. They've passed Hebron. They've passed all of... That, that, that's fine, whatever. We are going to go to Jerusalem. We are going to take David. So David's in the hold, and verse 19 tells us, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the Philistines? "'Wilt thou deliver them into mine hand?' And the Lord said unto David, "'Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into thy hand.'" David asks God what he should do, and God answers him, "'Go up. It won't even be a contest. The Philistines will be delivered into your hand.'" Continuing in verse 20 and 21, "'David came to Baal-perazim, and David smote them there and said, "'The Lord hath broken forth upon mine enemies before me as the breach of waters.'" Therefore, he called the name of that place Baal Perazim, and there they left their images, and David and his men burned them. Baal Perazim was at Mount Perazim, which was on the north end of the Valley of Rephaim. So if you remember where the Valley of Rephaim is, on the very north end was Mount Perazim. Baal is the word for gods. And so the gods of Perazim, this was a place of worship. It was a place of false god worship. And the Philistines were likely... Uh, used it as a place to, to seek the favor of their gods before going into the battle. And while they're there seeking the favor of their false gods, David attacks from that point. It's a weak point. It's a vulnerable point. He attacks them. And in a stroke of irony, David attacks them at the place where their gods are supposed to reside and be the strongest, right? And he utterly destroys them. It says that uh, David says that he, allowed, he broke forth on his enemies... As the breach of waters, this uh, past Thursday, the Premans and my family were standing on the white sand beaches of Pensacola, and it was a, a cloudy day. It was not exactly a warm, sunny day. it was warm enough, muggy enough, right? but it was it was a cloudy day, and it was a windy day, so there were actually some some legitimate waves, uh, not not real tall, probably. Uh, six or seven feet at their highest point when things really got kick, kicking. Uh, not too much taller than, than we would have been. Uh, we couldn't go in the water. We didn't have clothes. And, and um, I, I believe it was a red flag day anyway, so it wouldn't have been the wisest day to go into the water. But we were watching. And it's just incredible, is it not? If you've ever seen the, the waves, and, and it's not a lot of waves in Pensacola, but when, they, when they're rising and then they curl, and all of that water that's been curling just crashes down. And you can hear it and, and you can feel it. And, and there's, there's force there as the water. I can only imagine what the big waves on the Pacific must be like when they swell and then fold over and crash. And there's just the power. And he says that David says that he came upon them like the breaking of water and just scattered them and destroyed them, just smashed them. That's the idea there. The Philistines were not dissuaded easily, however. There's a duplicate slide there, Matt, if you want to skip past the the duplicate. The Philistines came, uh, verse 22 says, The Philistines came up yet again and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So here they go again. Verse 23, And David inquired of the Lord. He said, Thou shalt not go up, but fetch a compass behind them, and come upon them over against the mulberry trees. So David did what David does. He's doing well here as a young king. He's asking the Lord every time, every battle, what should I do, Lord? What should I do? He's, he's allowing each step to be guided by the Lord. The first time, God said, do it. Go after them. The second time, God said, don't go up against them. Go around to the back by the mulberry trees. Come up against them there. This likely would have been, again, located right on the edge of Rephaim. And notice how God instructs him. He says in verse 24, And let it be, when thou hearest the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees, now then thou shalt bestir thyself. For then shall the Lord go before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. And David did so, as the Lord commanded him, and smote the Philistines from Geba, until thou come to Gezer. So David and his men would remain among the trees until such time as they heard the tops of the trees moving. And then they will know that God would have gone before them into battle to fight the Philistines, and they would bestir themselves. They would get themselves up, and they would go and they'd clean up the rest. They would clean, the, clean up the, the mess uh, that, as, as the Philistines fled, and they would just take care of it. So they did. They drove the Philistines back deeply toward the coast. They took back a great deal of the land that the Philistines had taken from them eight years earlier. Israel now has much more territory and so ends the chapter. A pretty encouraging chapter, is it not? This chapter on David. And as we apply this evening, I'd like us to go back to the concept that we considered in verse 12, where we read this, And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. As we think of the day when the promises of God to David came to pass, we consider carefully the words that the Lord has established him king, that the Lord has exalted the kingdom. Do you see the emphasis here? God did the work. And in this emphasis, we find a beautiful concept, which should be the goal of our lives in every aspect. Consider with me some points this evening. We'll end up looking at four points in regard to hope's blessed end, waiting on the Lord. First being this, waiting on the Lord is a process of patience. Waiting on the Lord is a process of patience. We know the Bible tells us to wait on the Lord. It's not always an easy thing to do, but we know we ought to. And we need to first understand that waiting on God is a process of patience. Waiting on God is the process of allowing God to bring about His will in our lives, to humbly seek the will of God through His Word, through His Spirit, and then with patience to wait on God's obvious timing, obvious will, obvious direction in the way that you should go. It is to serve God in what you do, what you know how to do now, while you are patiently waiting for God to bring about the things that you don't know. Several weeks ago, I preached a message from 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, on inquiring of the Lord. In this message, I emphasize the ability that we have to know the will of God as we search the will of God through the Spirit. That yes, we know God's Word. And that God's Word will bring us into a framework of blessing and understanding. And then it's the Spirit of God who directly leads us into the, the way that we should go in the individual decisions. You're not going to be able to open your Bible and determine whether or not you should buy that car. Explicitly. But the Spirit of God can explicitly tell you whether or not you should do so. Waiting on the Lord is what happens once you understand the will of the Lord in a matter. Like David, who knew he was to be king, but didn't know when the will of God would give him the kingdom, we can know God's will, but be asked by God to patiently wait for him to bring about the circumstances by which God's will is realized. The goal of waiting upon the Lord is that as we seek and identify his will... We are not content just to know what God's will is and then to bring it about ourselves, but to patiently wait for God to work His will in our lives. That through the marks of divine guidance, God does not only point us in the way that we should go, but He tells us when we should go there, and sometimes He'll even pick us up and carry us there Himself. Waiting on the Lord... Is trusting God not only to reveal His will, but also to enable His will. Not only to say, I want you to go there, but also give you the means by which to get there. So it's a process of patience. But, carefully note as I say that, number two, waiting on the Lord, however, is not a process of idleness. It's a process of patience, but it's not a process of idleness. Waiting on the Lord is when we identify elements of God's will and we wait on God to bring them to pass. But waiting on the Lord does not mean sitting around doing nothing until such time as God brings about His will. You don't just sit down and say, I'm just going to sit here and do nothing until, whatever, until the things that God has promised, he, he, he enables. Everything about the process of waiting upon the Lord speaks toward being busy what you know God wants you to do today in preparation for those things that God has for you tomorrow. There's something that you, you perceive the Lord wants you to have, or a direction you perceive the Lord wants you to go, but He hasn't opened the doors yet. Well, I guess I'll just sit down and wait for Him to open the door. And the way, No, 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 no. Do things today. Get busy today. Serve the Lord in the way that you can today, as you're waiting for Him to open the door for tomorrow. And you know what you'll find oftentimes? That the things that He's asking you to do today are actively preparing you to open the doors for tomorrow that if you get busy doing what you know God has for you today no matter how how little you know about what God wants you to do if you just open the Word of God and you get back to the basics and you say okay God I don 't know what you want me to do but I know that your, your word tells us that we need to be telling others about Christ I know that your word tells us we need to be uh, we need to be busy working and, and, and providing for families um, husbands, fathers, parents in the room. I know that, that the Bible tells us that we need to be uh, disciplining our children. If you just go back to the basics and you keep doing those while you're waiting, oftentimes those basics are positioning you for, for the greater revelation of God's will and the enablement to see that will done. You don't wait until the day you know you need a tool to begin preparing that tool for use. Right? We're, we're coming out of winter and into spring. It's the time where the snow blowers are being win- uh, summarized and put away, and, and the, the lawnmowers and the, the chainsaws and the, the leaf blowers and all of the other things are being brought out and are being, uh, after having been winterized, and are being prepared for use. Now, you're not going to wait until the day that your grass is four feet long and you're you're really desperately needing to mow it to check and see if your mower is ready to go for the summer. You pull it out early, you check the gas, you check the oil, you check the spark plug, you check the air filter, you tune it up, you crank it up, you make sure it's working, and then you put it somewhere ready to go when you need it. You prepare a tool ahead of time to be used when it's time. A runner does not wait until the day of the marathon to prepare his body. He doesn't wake up on marathon day and say, well, I guess I better start eating right. Maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll, I'll uh, start you know, preparing my body for a marathon. No, 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 no. A runner says months ahead of time, I'm going to be running that marathon. I need to be eating right. I need to be, have a sleeping regimen. I need to drink this much water every day. I need to be stretching every day. I need to go for sh- smaller runs. I need to try different terrain. I need to get some, some good shoes. I need to be ready to go. Life is a series of steps whereby we pursue the will of God in active ways and in passive ways. We make ourselves the most usable and available tool that we can in eager anticipation of the time when God through His Spirit says, Go! I've got something for you. So you prepare yourself to share the gospel. You learn the gospel. Maybe you even practice sharing the gospel. You run it through in your mind so that the day that somebody is sitting next to you at the bus stop... And they say, wow, I just really wish I knew what happened to me when I die. You are ready. That's not the time where you pull out the how to share the gospel in 10 steps and start flipping through it, hoping you can figure something out to tell them. You've, you're prepared. You're ready to go. And it's just all of the faithfulness of the past, the things that you know you can do today. God, I just want to share the gospel, but I don't know, I don't know the, what you would have me to do. Do you want me to go door knocking? Do you want me to go to the stadium? during the Twins games, and just hand out tracts in front of the stadium? Do you want me to go to college campuses and just uh, hold up a big cross that says, are you ready, and just be, 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 be calling people unto dialogue? Do you want me uh, to go down and, and, and uh, be, do, do something for the poor, to the homeless, and, and give them a gospel tract with it, or share the gospel? I don't know, God. You may not know. God, I know you want me to do something, but you haven't shown me what yet. But what can you do today? Well, while you're waiting for Him to open the door, be busy about what you can do. Be busy about what you know. Learn the Word of God. Memorize verses. Practice engaging people. We make ourselves the most usable and available tool that we can, and we just prepare ourselves for God to say go. As God lightens our path to the ways He would have us to go, we take those steps in faith. Those steps give us both a place to serve and illuminates new directions to point our efforts. Each step along the way, we're growing in grace. We're being led into God's will. We're being prepared for what God gives us next. I I don't necessarily want to use a personal example because it might come across as self-exalting. But I I think a real-world testimony of this might be helpful. So let me talk about my family's experience moving up here to Minnesota from Florida. When we lived in Florida, we had no idea what God had planned for us. I knew that I was heading into full-time ministry, and that's really all I knew. I knew the burdens the Lord had placed upon my my heart. I knew the direction, non-age-segregated ministry. Uh, I I struggled with some of the things that I saw in fundamentalist culture, some of the things that churches did, some of the things that pastors did, some of the ways that they preached, and and, and some of the ways that they didn't teach, and um, some of the things that never came up in in church. Growing up in fundamentalist churches all my lives and, and majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. And, and I, I knew some of these burdens, but I didn't know where, what to do with them. So my wife and I, living in Florida, not knowing what God had planned for us, and, and we just served Him where we were. I got my master's degree. We served at, at uh, our jobs and ministered to those who were there. All the while, we were saving money, anticipating whatever might be next. Who knows? Little did we know that God would call us to this church, a place where, as my wife and I learned how to work as a team, working together down at school, we now have to work as a team more than ever before. A place where, at the outset, the church could not guarantee us any salary, and yet that was okay, because the Lord had blessed us with savings because we had just done what we knew how to do that day. Those years, we did what we knew how to do. We did what we could in preparation for whatever the Lord had for us. We wanted to buy a house so that we could set roots, but we knew we needed to rent first. Not having any discernible income is a real hindrance to being able to rent, right? Yeah. Tell the person you want to rent the house, and they say, can we have your income? Well, goose egg. Sorry. <laughs> I'm hoping that maybe we'll have income at some point, but we don't have any today. You'd think that that would be a hindrance. But, you know, God laid it upon the hearts of our landlord. We had the money in the bank, so they accepted our application. It wasn't perhaps the safest bet for them, but the Lord led them to do it. And he could, because we had money in the bank, and we had the capacity to pay rent, even though we didn't have a salary coming in necessarily. While we were in Florida waiting upon the Lord's timing, my wife and I simply busied ourselves doing what we could while we were there. We were busy ministering in the opportunities which God had given to us, and then we were busy doing whatever we could to prepare ourselves for whatever it was that God would have for us. And praise the Lord. He was able to use it now that again i i don't say that to try to be self-exalting i'm just giving you an example this is this is what we ought to be doing now my wife and i haven't done that very well all the time but in this case as we just did what we knew to do the lord used it to prepare us for what he had for us later even though we didn't know what it was being busy about what you know god has for you today Actively sanctifying yourself and keeping yourself in a state of preparation for whatever God might have for you next. Waiting on God to bring it to pass. That's the idea. And when you do this, notice with me point three. So first, waiting on the Lord is a process of patience. It's not a process of idleness. Point three. Waiting on the Lord guarantees God's strength for God's calling. God does not lead you where he will not provide for you. Young people, we just went to college this past week to check it out, right? If you were to feel the Lord leading you there, God does not lead where he does not provide. Provide financially. Provide emotionally to suffer that Florida weather. Families, individuals, children, parents, God does not lead where He does not provide. God would not lead David to the throne of Israel without also providing for David the means by which to perform the responsibilities. In Isaiah 40, verses 30 and 31, the Bible says, Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. This is what it is to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Not that we have this strength, but that as we wait upon the Lord, the Lord renews our strength. As we walk through this life, Those whose expectation is upon God, those who wait upon the Lord, will without fail, in the day of direction, find the capacity to do what God has asked them to do. Because if God brought you there, he's going to take care of you there. You don't have to worry about that part. You don't have to worry about whether you can do it, because if God brought you there, then you will do it through him. The way of a man can only get him as far as his intellect or his strength or his charisma can take him. But the way of God can take a man as far as God will have him to go, regardless of himself. And this state of going God's way, going into God's will, through God's strength, leads us to a blessed and inevitable end. This is the end that we all want for our lives. Point four. Waiting on the Lord brings the fullest of contentment. When you've done something God's way, and you have the confidence of knowing that you are in God's will, so that you are operating in God's strength, you know what you'll find? Complete contentment. You might second guess your place but only until you look back and remember how you got there. You might question your ability, but only until your confidence in God leads you back to His will and therefore His enabling. Waiting on the Lord brings the fullest of contentment. That you know that where you are is where you ought to be. No second guessing. No confusion. No, I wonder what if. Because you know that God has brought you there. On the day when David finally received the kingdom, and Hiram, the king of Tyre, was building him a house, David knew beyond a doubt that God had established him. How did he know? Because David didn't take anything that God did not give him. David had the chance to kill Saul on multiple occasions and take the kingdom. He didn't do it. It added years to David's wait. But those were God's years, not his years. If God wanted David to have those years, David could rest in the confidence that he would have had them. God didn't give them to him. He waited. He didn't kill Abner when he had the chance. He didn't kill ish And in not killing these men, he added another seven and a half years to his wait. But those were God's years. Not his years. And David could rest in confidence that if God wanted him to have those years, God would have given him those years. Then came the day that the kingdom was finally his. No more challengers to his throne. The people had willingly submitted submitted themselves to his leadership. He didn't have to conquer Israel. Israel came to him and said, Here's the kingdom. And at that moment, can you imagine the confidence that David must have had? He didn't, he didn't usurp the throne, overthrow the throne. He didn't even take the nation by force. God gave him the throne. God gave him the nation in their heart. And God gave him allies. Hiram, king of Tyre. He could rest in God's power to help him rule the people. He could go down to the Philistines and know that he will be victorious. Why? Because he knows that he's the king of Israel. He knows what that means. He knows that God will bless his people. And he knows that he is where he's supposed to be. So he has God's blessing. He could rest in the position that God had placed him in. He could be king with the utmost confidence of God's blessing and God's power because he waited for God to give him the kingdom. The same can be said in every avenue of life. When you wait upon God, there's confidence. Young people, when you wait upon God to give you a spouse, when you don't go out seeking and persisting and... When you wait. You don't have to doubt whether or not you chose the right person. Whether or not you can be the spouse that you need to be. Because if God led you to another person and God brought you together and it wasn't you twisting arms or manipulating or pretending to be something that you're not or uh, it wasn't you becoming pretty enough to get married or strong enough to get married or rich enough to get married it was it was God bringing the right person at the right time and making it clear when that happens you can know that God will enable you to be everything you need to be for that spouse and you can know that it's God's will. When you wait upon God to give you that job or that ministry, you'll never need to doubt whether or not you made the right decision because you didn't make it. God gave it to you. You'll never need to doubt whether or not you can do the job because God gave it to you, and He will enable you to do what you need to do. To wait upon God is to experience the blessing of God leading you into His divine will and experience the contentment of knowing that where He leads, He enables and He provides. And what more can we ask for in this life? And to be in God's perfect will, led and enabled by His Holy Spirit. Let's close in prayer.